This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about democracy in Cuba and other Caribbean neighbors and the challenges, the historical challenges. Many of them are related to American foreign policy. Many of them are related to local factors. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, Cuba and that region have a long, difficult history of democratic efforts. And we're going to talk today about why that's the case and what we can learn from that history as we see the people of Cuba today, many of them demanding democratic reforms in their society. What, what, what can we learn from this history to understand uh, this contemporary effort at transformation in Cuba and other societies today? We're fortunate to be joined uh, by an old friend and really wonderful scholar and teacher, uh, Professor Alan McPherson. Alan is a professor of history and director of the Center for the Study of Force and Diplomacy at Temple University, which is a fantastic center. They produce a lot of interesting scholarship. I've had the good fortune of going out there to speak a few times. Alan is a prolific and very thoughtful writer. He's written and edited 11 books. The most recent is a book that we featured on our podcast, actually, just before COVID, uh, in that uh, prehistoric period, it seems like so long ago, Alan, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's a wonderful book, The Ghosts of Sheridan Circle, How a Washington Assassination Brought Pinochet's Terror State to Justice. Really an extraordinary book about an important moment in the 1970s that really transformed U.S.-Latin American relations. Uh, Alan, thank you for joining us again today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion with Alan, we have uh, Zachary's poem for the week. Uh, What is your poem titled today, Zachary? Certainly Probable. Certainly Probable. Let's see where this one takes us. Let's hear it. I see that moment clearly, coming like a hurricane of malaise to the island of paradox, here where Columbus beached, here are the soundtracks on Bay of Pigs. I see that moment clearly now that moment when we might all crawl back to our indifference and erase the memory of said floating contradiction, hear the tiki bar, the lazy river, hear the poor man's hut. But really, it is not inevitable, though certainly probable, that the government shall dissolve the people and elect another. <laughs> A little irony at the end there, Zachary. What is your poem about? Well, my poem really uh, takes this Brecht quote, that the, this idea that the government shall dissolve the people and elect another, and sort of takes us beyond the moment of, of now when we see this, this moment of reckoning in Cuba and asks what will happen afterwards, right? And asks really, can we sustain this? Can this be something that succeeds? And what does that take? Right, right. And of course, you know, we assume that the people make the government, but the point here is that sometimes the government makes the people. Right? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yes. So, Alan, I, I think that's probably a good place to turn to you. Uh, Cuba, like many uh, societies uh, in the Caribbean and in Central America, the region you know better than, than almost anyone, um, Cuba has gone through many waves of efforts at democratizing itself. Why, uh, why historically has this been so difficult? Right. Well, of course, you know, Cuba is its own case apart. Let me start with how Cuba, besides that, is, is actually similar to a lot of places in the Caribbean and Central America. 
I mean, these are relatively small places. Uh, they are poor. Uh, they've been, uh, you know, historically colonized at the mercy of large European powers, and then the United States. Their economies were there to sort of service the the needs of larger economies, and so they were export economies. They were exploited. Uh, you know, millions of African slaves, uh, enslaved peoples were were sent to the Caribbean, and so the economy was never really supposed to prosper, right? You weren't supposed to create uh, middle classes that could sort of sustain a democratic movement in those uh, those islands and those small places. And so the entire Caribbean area has always struggled with democracy for those reasons. Now, partly because of its poverty inequality and and the, the, the presence of the United States in Cuba, it underwent essentially what became a communist revolution in 1959. I'm sure your listeners essentially know this. And so for Cuba, there's the added difficulty that communism formally does not, right, does not allow democracy. And so you have a one-party regime, and if it strays from you know, government control of the economy and this sort of one-party elections, it's going to be going against its its whole reason for being. And so it's very difficult to install any kind of democracy now in Cuba and has been for decades. And, and Alan, why did Cuba become the focus of a, a communist revolution in the way it did? And, and how did the, the government of Fidel Castro, who passed away, I think, just 10 years ago and was in, really ruled the country as a dictator virtually from 1959 to 2016, I think it was, right? Um, so not 10 years ago, I guess he passed away five years ago. How, how did that happen? How did, how did Castro's regime, how did this communist regime come to power? And how did they stay in power? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a complicated question. Cuba was not necessarily sort of the poorest country in, uh, in that part of the world, but it's a combination of factors. One is that it had a very disliked dictator. That dictator was perceived and, to, you know, to, to a great extent, was close to the United States. And so there was this perception that the United States was encouraging uh, dictatorship and not democracy in Cuba. This is Fulgencio Batista, correct? Yes, it's Fulgencio Batista. So he leaves on the 1st of January, 1959. And, you know, the other sort of big factor is that you had a very charismatic and to a certain extent sort of, you know, very strategic and lucky uh, guerrilla movement that took him out of power. For several months, Fidel Castro, when he comes to power, he's not, you know, he's not even the prime minister. He's, he's just sort of the head of this guerrilla movement, but he's allied with several other Cubans. And many of these Cubans, uh, you know, their only alliance with Castro is that they were anti-Batista, right? Anti-dictatorship. Many of them are Democrats and they want a democracy. And Castro essentially says, uh, we don't think we're ready for this. And he, you know, quickly takes the reins of power and says, okay, well, I guess there won't be any elections or there will be in two years or four years or whenever Cuba's ready. Uh, and eventually um, that kind of, you know, halfway communist dictatorship turns the United States against Castro. Uh, the CIA starts organizing uh, against Castro. The, you know, the Dwight Eisenhower government also starts cutting off Castro from its economy. And so Castro essentially turns to the Soviets as the only alternative that he sees of a sort of a great power that can buy what he has to offer, which is sugar. 
Um, and so, of course, in return, the Soviets want, you know, a, a communist economy, a communist politics. And you know, so I think it's not necessarily that Castro always wanted to be a communist, although he later said that he did always want to. But I think it's the way it evolves that, you know, he wants complete independence from the United States. Uh, he's strongly nationalistic and he wants personal power. And the way to get those things is to have a communist government. Um, and so that's the way you sort of, you know, maintain the, the, the strong nationalism and independence of Cuba. And that's, that's mostly what the Cuban revolution has been about. It's striking that a, a society that is so small in islands, it's such a small island and so close to the United States that it could survive for so long uh, as an adversary of the United States. Um, is that simply because of external support from the Soviet Union um, or how do we explain that? Oh, I think the external support was was crucial, but it, it wasn't the only thing. I mean, you certainly needed to have this trade relationship with the Soviets where the Soviets would purchase sugar at a high price, right, higher than what Cubans would have, you know, been able to sell it for in the market. And of course, the Soviets gave in return cheap petroleum. And so this really sustained Cuba as, you know, as, as a society and as a government and economy for, you know, up until the end of the Cold War. And if you talk to, you know, to people who lived in Cuba in the 60s and 70s, they said it was really, you know, quite quite sort of an easy, uh, well-run econ- you know, economy and society. And in many ways, if you were a leftist, this was utopia, right? This was heaven on earth. Uh, there really was equality after a couple of the f- first couple of months or years where the enemies of the revolution are, are either being you know, thrown in jail or are leaving the island. Cuba is essentially all communist and there's, you know, almost unanimous support for Castro. And so when you do have an external threat, such as the failed invasion of the Bay of Pigs in 1961, it just, what it does actually is really rally the population around Castro and around the idea that communism is the only way forward, right? And, you know, add to that, that the economy is able to sustain a decent, you know, standard of living for most Cubans. And, you know, then the revolution just keeps going. Right. And so Castro has sort of put into the minds of Cubans for four or five decades that the revolution is always ongoing. Right. It's not something that happens at 59 and then you start a new society. It's always ongoing, which is why he's always in fatigues, right, for, for decades, because he wants to show that this sort of war is always uh, going to continue. So, so how does Cuba survive the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s? And, and, and uh, more recently, the exit of the Castros from the political arena. Yeah, I mean, I think survives is, is, is the operative word here, right? It, it barely does. And the conditions that we're seeing now that explain the, the recent protests in the last week or so are actually quite similar to the conditions of uh, the 1990s for different reasons. But essentially, the economy almost collapses. The Gorbachev government essentially takes away all its support for the Cuban economy, right? Soviet soldiers leave. There's no more cheap oil. They're not buying the sugar anymore. And so, you know, the Castros and the revolution survive in two ways. One is that they turn to tourism. They do what just about everybody else in the Caribbean does, who doesn't have, you know, petroleum, and they develop their tourism industry. And so that is the source of their uh, their foreign currency. 
And if you go to Cuba, there's, you know, there's long been lots of, lots of tourists there, not just Americans, but mostly Europeans, Canadians, and so on. Uh, so that's highly developed, and it really starts in the 1990s or intensifies in the 1990s. The second thing that it does is it allows some, some limited forms of sort of free market reforms, right? So in the 1990s, you start seeing these very small, very highly regulated uh, businesses. So if you have a house and you have, you know, a large kitchen, you can put, you know, four tables in your living room and you can operate a restaurant out of your, out of your house. And so you see these tens of thousands of businesses also catering essentially to, uh, to foreigners. Um, and so Cuba becomes this sort of dual economy. There's actually sort of two rates of exchanges, right? Uh, so there's a lot of foreign currency and just about everybody tries to get their hands on it. And then there's the almost worthless pesos that people who aren't fortunate enough to work for foreigners uh, have to live on. Uh, and so most people are trying to, you know, sort of scavenge and do, and do both of those things. And are the protests that we're seeing now, Alan, do you think these rise to the level of a serious challenge to the regime? Or, or how should we understand what we're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen, but I do see them as uh, a serious grievance against the regime. Now, whether the regime will you know, fall or respond to these or transform itself, uh, that I'm seriously doubtful about. I mean, if, if there's one thing we know about the Cuban regime is that, or Cuban leaders, I should say, is that they're very good at withstanding any kind of sort of popular uprising. Uh, they're very good at, at sort of pretending that they identify with the people and that they're going to resolve the people's problems. Uh, we just saw this week, right, the, 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 the sort of younger president of of Cuba essentially telling uh, the people, well, we've probably made some mistakes, we can make some adjustments, we'll do what we can. But at the same time, he's shutting down the movements, he's arresting hundreds of people, uh, he's shutting down much of social media. And so to me, one of the big questions is, you know, is this sort of an Arab Spring in Cuba? Uh, is this something where the people en masse, you know, through social media will rise up and will actually obtain the ousting and transformation of this regime. And I would bet not. And why not? I mean, I think, you know, the, the Cuban government is, is so good at, uh, okay. right, sort of like I said, they're, they're so good at sort of pretending that they're going to respond to the people. And they might make some changes, right? They've always been able to make some changes you know, since the 1990s, and we're, you know, this has been 30 years now, they're good at sort of making some changes. And then when Cubans are taking advantage too much of those changes and maybe asking for too much or asking for political changes al along with economic changes, then they start scaling them back, right? Um, there's also a very unique dynamic in Cuba where if you are, you know, as a citizen or as sort of a civil society group, Putting yourself in opposition to the Cuban regime, it's very, very easy for the Cuban government to say, you are in cahoots with the ultimate enemy, which is the United States, uh, and within that, the Cubans from Florida, and therefore, you're not authentic Cubans, you're not really 
nationalistic and therefore you're, you know, you have no legitimacy. And in fact, that's what we saw the president of Cuba also do this week to sort of accuse these movements of being funded by the United States. So, so you mentioned the Cubans in Florida. What, what role does the uh, Cuban emigrant community in Florida play in this whole discussion? Right. I mean, they, they play all sorts of roles. I mean, one is that they're they're an important source of, of funding for all Cubans, right? I mean, almost everybody in Cuba knows someone in the United States, not necessarily in Cuba. Um, and so their remittances, right, the money that they send to families and friends in Cuba have always been very important. And that has been a source that has dried up during COVID. It's dried up partly because of COVID. It's dried up partly because of the Trump organization, which cut off a lot of the sort of ways in which that money was funneled to Cubans. Because essentially, Trump said the Cuban military and the Cuban government controls um, the, the the ways in which money goes from you know an American and a Cuban in Florida to a Cuban in Cuba, and therefore. We're helping to fund the Cuban military. That's the last thing we want, so we're shutting it down. So that's why uh, I think it was today uh, Joe Biden has said, we're going to take another look at this and possibly open up those channels again because even though money goes to the army, it also, of course, goes to regular Cubans. So in that way, Cubans in Florida are very important for the economy of Cuba. It's such an interesting insight, Alan. Um, One of the eternal debates, of course, and you've written about this, is the debate between whether one should try to cut off a regime um, that's acting in in repressive ways or whether one should engage that regime. Um, What's your point of view on this? I mean, I think that the United States needs to engage Cuba as much as possible because what we're seeing really is the result of, you know, it's partly the result. It's partly just COVID, which the United States couldn't really control. Um, but it's partly the result of the pullback from the Trump organization um, and a pullback after the opening uh, by Obama. So the opening by Obama allowed a lot more dollars to flow to the to Cuba, allowed a lot more Americans to go there, allowed a lot more businesses to flourish. And so Cubans quite suddenly got a lot more of a taste of sort of freedom uh, than they had before. And a lot of that is is financial freedom. Um, and so now it's been taken away from them. And so they are realizing what they could have been having right for decades. Um, and it's now being taken away from them. And they're very frustrated by this. You know, there's this fascinating uh, music video that has been that has gone viral in Cuba. And uh, its title is sort of Fatherland and Life, right? Patria y Vida. And I, I watched it yesterday. It's quite good. And its title essentially is a play on on the old sort of calling card of Fidel Castro, which is fatherland or death, right? We'll do anything to sort of sustain the independence of Cuba. And what these young people are saying, and they say this in the song, right? They're all young folks and they mostly men. And they essentially say, that was your 59. This is our 2020, right? So your 59 was, was fatherland or death. But, you know, the, the patria is, is fine now. The independence is secured. Right? We're not going to lose our independence. What we want is our own country, yes, but we also want life, right? You need to give us more sort of possibilities for improving our lives here in Cuba. And so we're patriots, but we're patriots who want more. 
And that has also been, therefore, the chant of a lot of these protesters in the streets. They're chanting Patria y Vida. And that's going to be a slogan that's very hard for the Cuban regime to just deny. It, it sounds like a classic case of what Alexis de Tocqueville called the revolution of rising expectations, where things get better, people get access to a better lifestyle. And then when there are restrictions, even if the restrictions don't take them back to the suffering of the past, they still resent it and they expect things that they didn't expect before. And they ask the regime to do things it didn't do before. Um, and it, it sounds like that's what you're describing, Alan. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting because that phrase is one that American policymakers used about Cuba and much of Latin America in the 1950s, right? They were saying that there's increasing numbers of students in universities and middle classes and people who are living in cities. They're well-educated and they want democracy, right? They have more, uh, they have more economic freedom, prosperity than ever, and they want democracy to go along with it. So they're taking down dictators one after the other. We need to be on the right side of this. So now we're seeing this again in Cuba. But let me go back to the issue of Florida, right? The, the, the big reason why Joe Biden and the Democrats in general hesitate to engage Cuba more is the politics of Florida, right? It's not the money coming out of Florida. It's right. the politics of Florida. Right. Because if Biden sort of caves too quickly and seems to be collaborating with the, the Cuban regime, then he might, again, lose Florida in 2022, 2024. And so he's got Florida politicians, I will bet you, telling him, don't go too fast on this, right? Let's make sure it benefits, uh, it benefits Florida you know, families of Cubans and that they want it and that we're not helping the Cuban regime. And that's a very fine line to thread, right, between helping Cubans but not helping their government. Right. And your, your point is so well said, Alan. Uh, there's a big Senate race, of course, in Florida in 2022, Val Demings uh, running against incumbent Mar uh, Marco Rubio. And I'm, I'm quite sure that those on the Democratic side are probably saying exactly what you just said to Biden. Help the Cubans, but don't make it look like you're in any way caving into the regime or doing anything that, that helps the regime. Alan, I wanted to just switch back to the regional view, if we could, for a second. You've already covered so much for us here. But uh, throughout this, this period uh, that you spent a lot of time uh, elucidating for us, period from 1959 to the present, Cuba was a remarkably influential country in the region. Um, and Fidel was a kind of iconic figure. And uh, many have argued that the um, spread of anti-American uh, rhetoric and criticisms, many legitimate criticisms of American policy in the region, were, were fueled uh, by, by Cuba's presence. You yourself have written a lot about this. Does the movement toward democracy, or at least the pressure to reform the regime, does that have a, a contagious effect of its own in the region? I wouldn't say too much because um, most countries in the Caribbean are really not in the position that, that Cuba is in. I think, you know, if, if anything, uh, it's going to increase the pressure on the United States to, uh, to abandon the embargo. Right? The United States has had an embargo on Cuba uh, since the early 60s. And in fact, I saw several governments in the area around the world are saying you know, to Joe Biden, now's the time to lift the embargo. I don't think that's going to happen. One, be, one because Joe Biden simply can't do it by himself. The embargo is now a law. Uh, it's not an executive order anymore. And so he, it has to go through Congress. No way the Republicans are going to collaborate on lifting the embargo 
uh, it would hand far too large of a you know of a, a victory to the Democrats, even though it would actually help undermining the the Cuban regime. Uh, and so, for that reason, you know, it's it's going to be hard. But I think also democracy is well settled in most of the Caribbean. The exception really is Haiti. But I think Haiti, uh, most I think people in the Caribbean see it as a case apart from Cuba, right? It's certainly not communistic. Um, it's it's had its own issues with dictatorship and development. Um, but Cuba doesn't particularly influence a lot of the countries around it. That makes sense. That makes sense. And certainly in the case of Haiti, which, which you mentioned, uh, the United States probably is partially to blame for the the now assassinated leader staying in office too long. We, we, we certainly encouraged him to stay in power in many ways. Yes. Alan, as we sort of come to a close here, we always like to think uh, forward, to look, look to the future a little bit. What do you think are some lessons going forward for the United States? You've talked about the sort of history in the region, the, the uh, ways in which the United States has dealt with uh, conflicting factors and how we've often gotten them wrong the complexities of what's happening in Cuba and elsewhere. What, what have we learned going forward and how should citizens who are listening think about the role that the United States can and should play in coming years in Cuba and in neighboring countries? Right. I mean, I guess there's a couple good lessons here. One is, you know, don't, don't start an embargo. <laughs> uh, don't start a long-term embargo on a very small country because then you're, you're sort of stuck with it, right? It's very difficult to, to undo that embargo, uh, especially under these sort of political circumstances. But the larger lesson here is don't try to understand that democracy is sort of an indigenous process, right? It has to happen from within. Uh, that's what is occurring in Cuba today. It was fine to normalize relations with Cuba in terms of you know opening up trade and remittances and travel with Cuba, but don't do much more than that, right? Do not get involved in forming political parties or having some sort of political influence on which right anti-government group might be in power or might not be in power. You want to let democracy and democratic movements take their sort of natural course within a country without influencing from the outside, because that is always a recipe uh, for long-term disaster. If a, you know, a non-communist government comes up and it's been, it's been a product of external forces, especially U.S. forces, uh, it's not going to survive in Cuba. Right. So this is really about the limits of American power, uh, which I know is a theme in your in your scholarship. And you see that as one of the key lessons going forward. That's correct. Zachary, what do you think? I mean, a, a lot of uh, young people like yourself who care about uh, our neighbors, care about the region, care about democracy. Uh, I, I sense there is there's a, a desire to do more rather than just sit back and wait. What do you think about that? Is, is Alan's wisdom more practical and does it make sense? Can it, could, could his humble approach inspire young people? I think so. It's important to remember that our generation never really knew the Cold War. And so we don't, we don't see the, the Cuban regime as an existential threat to the United States, uh, though we may see it as an existential threat to its own people. But I think it's, it's important to remember that, that these things take time. And I think that, yes, as, as young people, we are quick to, to, to jump on easy solutions. But I also think we have a lot, a, a much greater understanding of how complex these issues do 
than our parents did, say, in 2003. Right. And of course, we've seen in our own society how complex and, and faulty many of our democratic assumptions are. And so maybe that humbling influence carries abroad with us. That The last question I wanted to ask you, Alan, is um, do, do you think that um, the debates we're having in the United States surrounding issues of race and issues of equality, do you think that, that these could in some way have a positive influence in, in moving our policy towards some of the uh, lessons you articulated? Or do you see these as separate issues? Oh, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, I think in a sense, you know, our, our, our issues about race are issues about democracy. And we have not yet been able to sort of build a true democracy in the United States. We've long been hobbled by race in forming uh, a, a, a sort of more egalitarian uh, community. If anything, the Cubans, I wouldn't say have solved this problem, but they've advanced it further than we have. They've been, you know, I think since the beginning of the revolution, a less racist country than the United States, a less divided country than the United States. If anything, we can learn from Cuba to transform our society. And hopefully uh, the Cubans can can learn from us as to you know, how to have a freer society, not necessarily a less racist one, but a freer society, a more prosperous one, and uh, one where, you know, the rising tide does, in fact, uh, lift all boats. Alan, that's such a thoughtful and inspiring place to close a conversation. And it reminds us of something that I think is often lost uh, in policy debates, uh, even in our scholarship, right, that change and influence go in two directions. I think you captured that in your discussion of the evolution of Cuba through the Cold War. And, and also, I think we can see that today. As, as you say, uh, the challenges of democratization in Cuba and the region are challenges different, but also related to the challenges in the United States. And it's not simply about our helping them. It's about our allowing ourselves to be helped by them uh, as well and, and seeing influence in both directions. And I think that that might be probably another historical lesson, right? To, to recognize we have something to learn from them just as they might have something to learn from us. Right, hopefully. We can all hope so. Uh, Alan, thank you for sharing your time with us. Uh, I want to encourage our listeners to uh, look up Alan's work. He's written on almost all the topics we've talked about today, uh, on anti-Americanism, on revolution in the region, on America's uh, largely... Uh, unsuccessful efforts to try to control the regime change in the region. And then, of course, as we mentioned, his most recent book on the um, violence that came to the United States from our supportive dictators o- overseas, particularly uh, in, in Chile. Uh, Alan, thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Jeremy and Zachary. And Zachary, thank you for your uh, provocative poem, as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.